This podcast is brought to you by BrunerAcademy.com, your online resource for the best public speaking, presentation, storytelling skills courses. Become a rock star communicator in any setting. Visit BrunerAcademy.com. When you think of a trained Navy SEAL, what comes to mind? Strength, physical endurance, mental toughness. My guest today is all of those things and so much more. He believes and practices yoga, Zen meditation, and using your intuition. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Live Your Best Life with me, Liz Bruner. My guest is taking all of his life experiences, philosophies, and SEAL training methods to help people live their best lives. Mark Devine, welcome to my podcast. (laughs) Thanks, Liz. Awesome to be here. Thanks so much. And thank you, first and foremost, for your service as a Navy SEAL. You have brought so much to our country. Thank you. And being a Navy SEAL, you're a member of what I could certainly call a very small elite club. And I want to put this into perspective for folks. At 26 years old, you enter SEAL training. 180 start out in your class. Only 19 graduate. And you are number one in that class. What an amazing accomplishment. What is it like to be a Navy SEAL? I mean, I've read your books, but I mean, what is it really like? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, not all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I could go on for weeks on this. You know, people have some fantastical ideas of what a Navy SEAL is from all the TV and movies, you know, that have been perpetrating some some myths and some realities. Now, when I went into the SEALs, there were none of that, right? So I was right. really operating off of a more of an internal vision and this drive to be part of a super elite team. And there was just whisperings back then, 1987, when I was looking at it, just whisperings of this group of men, you know, all men back then. In fact, still all men, even though we can talk about this later, that, that they're opening it up to women. When I went into the SEALs and got through the training, you know, I found some of my fantasies were upheld. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, I did join an elite group of individuals who were like extraordinarily committed to a number of things. One was their mission, mm-hmm. which was in service to the country, right? So those two were tied together, which was really cool because I had never really had a mission and I'd never really been a service to my country. So to combine those two was neat. Two, they were committed to perfecting themselves, to mastering themselves, to bettering themselves mm-hmm. every single day. And not just every day, but almost every moment of every day. Like the, it, it blew me away when I got in there, the level of commitment Mm. that each individual had to just constantly trying to improve themselves physically, intellectually, skillfully. And also, this brings me to the third point, they were committed to doing the same for each other. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just like, I'm over here trying to be the best, you know, you go do what you're going to do because it doesn't matter to me. It's no like, I'm going to do what I need to do to be be the best that I can be, but I'm also going to help you be the best that you can be Mm -hmm. so that we together, we as a team, can be the best that we can be. And that culture was extraordinary. And if you ask any a SEAL team what, what's the most profound aspect of their experience, they would they would say the brotherhood. Yeah. Now we could include women in that, right? So let's just not get stuck on <laughs> Don't get stuck on, on that. That's okay. Stuff, right? <laughs> we'll call it humanhood, right? Because humanity <laughs> is really what we were talking about. The deep connection that we had, that SEALs experience, you know, that that love for each other that transcends life even because you're willing to lay down your life for your teammates. It's extraordinary. And it's it's something that's hard to experience outside of that. But when you can experience that, it's pretty extraordinary. So I hope I didn't 
there's a little bit of maybe went into too much detail, you know, because I could have said, hey, it was badass. You know, we jumped out of airplanes and, you know. <laughs> well, you did all of that. I mean, that's all true. <laughs> but uh, That was the fun part. That was right. the adventure. For nine years, you're on active duty. I can't even imagine the dangers that you and your team may have faced. Was there ever a time on a mission that you feared for your life? SEALs fear just like other people fear, but they've learned to control that fear and to transmute the energy into focus Mm -hmm. and commitment and a winning attitude. You know, I can't even count on all my fingers how many times I almost died. And in those moments, right, there was that, that raw sensation of like, holy shit, this could be the moment, right? That everyone maybe has once in their life, you know, maybe they're near, near death in a car accident or something happens that is like, holy shit, that could have gone bad. I had those like almost every week. Because, you know, the, the level of risk is just so high and push the envelope in training and in combat. First of all, you reckon with that early on in your career as a SEAL that, you know, you're okay. If, mm-hmm. if it's, you know, if you don't come back from the mission, it's not great. It's not your ideal outcome, but you've already come to grips with your mortality. Mm-hmm. And you recognize that if you're doing it for the right reasons, right, you're not just in it for the job or for the glory, but you truly are a warrior and you're serving from that place. Mm-hmm then you're okay with that idea of death. You spend 11 more years as a reserve SEAL retiring from active duty as a commander in 2011. And the leadership of your teams was so effective that the government asked you to create mentoring programs for SEAL trainees, and it was hugely successful. What was the goal? What were you trying to accomplish with those programs? After 9-11, you know, special ops, you know, were fully engaged in the war on terror. Most members of Congress didn't really understand about special ops. They, they just snapped their fingers and wanted more of them. And so they said to the Navy, we need you to create 500 more SEALs tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and without really doing their research, you know, we have a saying in the special ops community that, that special operators, which include all branches, but the SEALs are probably the best known. Mm-hmm. For better or for worse. <laughs> we have a saying that uh, special operators cannot be mass produced. Mm-hmm. In the year that Congress said, which is like 2003 or four, I think, they said, okay, we need 500 more SEALs, which doesn't sound like a lot to most people. Like, wow, that sounds like nothing. You got to recognize at that time, there were only, let's say, about 1,200 or maybe 1,300 SEALs altogether. They were calling for the force to grow by one third, you know, just instantaneously. Like, just take a bunch of people out of the fleet and make them SEALs. And the SEALs came back and said, that's impossible. It will destroy, you know, 50 years of culture mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the institution will not be able to meet its mission. So here's a better idea. Let's create a program where we mentor the right type of people. So they did a study on like, who are the best type of people that succeed in buds training? We found out, oh yeah, they're wrestlers. What you would expect, Liz, they're the sure. people who do tough, do tough things already. You know what I mean? <laughs> tough guys. <laughs> yeah, they grow up in a farmer with a rifle. Check. They are wrestlers or competitive swimmers and water polo players or triathletes, check. So they started to recruit those people. And then third, they decided to create a nationwide mentoring program for these candidates to prepare them even before they go to boot camp. Mm. And the notion there was that if we can create a more qualified candidate coming into the pipeline, then we'll get more people out the back end. Typically, you get about a 10% success rate. That's just from people who start at BUDS. But if you were to actually calculate it from the beginning of boot camp, it's much, much lower. It's more like 1% to 5% success rate. 
I would have to think it went up after these mentoring programs, though. Well, it did. It, it went up about 5%, right? I was not on active duty. My company was hired because at the time, a second entrepreneurial venture was called NavySeals.com. And this is like the first web platform of any sort, you know, around Naval Special Warfare and the SEALs. And we had, back in the days, you remember forums, how they were a big deal. And we had forums. We were training people up yeah. on how to be Navy SEALs and other special operations. So we were actually mentoring people. We were doing it. So they hired us on a subcontract to go out and build this nationwide mentoring program. And it was hugely successful. It, like I said, it, it helped increase the throughput by about 5%, which increased the numbers of SEALs. And now today, we're at over 2,000 SEALs. You know, people think, wow, that, that's such a small number. That's amazing. You know, aren't the SEALs like the Marine Corps? The Marine Corps is like 150,000 people. Yeah, but I mean, you are this elite group of men right now. And that, you know, speaks to what you're talking about. I mean, this is not an easy program. It's not easy to get even selected for. Now, I was an officer, right? So officers represent, you know, a small percentage of the, the service, as they do in all, you know, all services, because the officers are at the, you know, they're at the leadership positions. And SEAL officers get brought in either from the Naval Academy or one of the ROTC programs. They bring in like 95%. But then they bring in just yeah. a few outsiders, civilians like me, who, you know, decide they want to do this. And then we go through officer candidate school and then to BUDS training. So that's the path that I went in 1990. And I remember my recruiter saying, you know, don't get your hopes up, Mark. You, know, you have statistically a better chance of becoming an astronaut than you do. Because <laughs> oh, that's comforting. going to take two people this year <laughs> into the SEALs from the civilian oh, world. And I got, I got selected. I tell that story in my book, The Way of the SEAL. And I think largely it's because of my, my mental training that mm -hmm. allowed me to get selected. But I also had a, a really good college degree from Colgate University. I had an MBA from NYU. I was a certified public accountant. I was doing a lot already. And I was an elite athlete. Well, you, you talk about that because what a lot of people may not know is before you were a Navy SEAL, mm -hmm. that was not your first career. <laughs> you talked about having the CPA and you had your MBA. You worked in a large professional services firm. You were successful, but you knew and felt deeply that something was missing. Right. Something was wrong. What was that? It was not living in alignment with my calling. You can't live your best life, I don't think, if you're not in alignment with your calling. If you don't in take the time to investigate, to listen for your soul, your spirit's kind of yearnings, archetypal yearnings, and also as well as just like what, how you're meant to serve, then you could spend a long, long time heading down the wrong path. And they still be quite successful. And you can convince yourself that you, you were meant for that because you might have some skills. You might even enjoy it, and you might enjoy some of the benefits of that, such as the wealth and the success and the prestige that comes with that. But as you know, none of that really is meaningful as you get older and you recognize, holy shit, I'm, I'm mortal. I can't take this money with me, but I could die trying. So what is it that I really want to do with my life when I grow up? And so, you know, we have a lot of clients I train now who are in their 50s and they're like, holy <laughs> shit, I, I, I'm asking that question for the very first time. I feel so incredibly blessed to have found any meditation, but I found Zen through my martial arts in 1985 when I first went down to Manhattan and started my job and started my business school. And it was the meditative practice, the journey of learning to kind of quiet my mind, learning to concentrate on just one thing instead of my mind bounce around on a million things, and then turning that more concentrated mind inward which happened quite naturally. It wasn't actually taught to me by my Zen master. He just taught me how to sit and breathe, basically. 
the breath to me is like your biggest teacher because when you slow down and begin to meditate or practice or whatever word you want to call it, just breathe. And then you follow that breath really closely and discreetly. Mm-hmm. It takes you inward because your breath is, is mind. It's consciousness itself. You are breathing mm-hmm. consciousness. And so the more discreet you put your mind and I used a process of Zen to do that onto the breath, it'll take you inward and it'll take you directly to your source directly to your spirit. When you're in those moments mm-hmm. of deep openness, you can hear that calling. And so for me, it showed up as like first a deep dissatisfaction, like my emotional body through my spirit was just saying, Mark, you're, you're on the wrong path. The CPA stuff is not for you. Business is not for you. My family business, which, you know, was calling me home was not for me. So there was this kind of like deep dissatisfaction, the sense of dis-ease or unease. A lot of people say, oh, I, I just can't meditate. I've, I've tried or I'm, I'm doing it wrong or it feels like it's just impossible. How do you respond to those comments? I mean, I know yeah. I struggle with it from time to time. I try and I do, but it is hard sometimes. We have a saying in the SEALs, um, I never said it would be easy. I just say it would be worth it. It takes uh-huh. discipline. It, it's, it's hard because we in the West are used to seeing direct evidence of our work. Like if we go on a weight loss program, you know, you can track your weight loss by stepping on a scale. If you go into a gym, you know, the trainer is going to say, okay, here's our goal. We're going to teach you how to deadlift and then we're going to get you to do 200 pounds, your body weight as an as a initial goal. And you can see yourself improving and benchmarking your progress. Well, with meditation, it's very difficult because neither you nor most teachers can really track your progress because it's so subjective and there's so much, so much kind of information that is either just wrong or hard to access that there's not a great way to understand how you're making progress. And so what happens is people sit down they think they're supposed to do, let's say mindfulness is very popular. Well, in my opinion, mindfulness is like one of the worst places to start meditation. It's very, very difficult. Why? Because of the monkey mind issue and the, and the amount of oh, yes. the sympathetic stress <laughs> that all of our bodies are in causes us to just sit down and basically think and we get caught up in, in our thinking and then you get done with that thinking and you're like, I, I don't feel any better. You know, I just sat there and obsessed for half an hour and it was painful. So people quit. I found meditation through physical training and also had many years where that physical training, especially the martial arts, kind of was, was de-stressing my body. I had tools to de-stress. That's why when I start working with people, I say, first, you gotta, we're going to move your body. You know, we got to do the fundamentals. Yeah. Move your body, fuel your body properly, start getting sleep. Because if we start meditation, like we can jump right to mindfulness, you're going to be really agitated. Your mind's going to be bouncing all over the place, right? And you'll give <laughs> you're up. You're going to give up. You won't have the mental fortitude. <laughs> you won't have the energy. And you won't have the discipline. So first, let's build some discipline in your physical training and your health and nutrition. But I have a secret weapon, Liz. Part of that foundational training, I also have them start a breathing practice called box breathing, which in its earliest stages is what we call about arousal control. So we're using the breath, breathing through our nostrils in a pattern that's shaped like a box, five count in, five count hold, five count out, five count hold. And we're not trying to do anything with our mind yet. So we're, we're not quote unquote meditating. So there's no kind of resistance there. All we're doing is de-stressing our body. We're, we're triggering the parasympathetic nervous system every time we inhale and every time we exhale. And the holds essentially are a Trojan horse 
before the beginning process of concentration. And so that we're now training our mind while we're de-stressing our body-mind and getting into a very, very Mm -hmm. kind of calm and balanced state. And then also that commensurate with working with your diet and your sleep and and your exercise doesn't take long. Within three months, all of a sudden, people are starting to feel like just incredibly different. They've had this transformation already. And they're like, I, I feel so different. And I said, okay, great. Now you're ready to start the next phase of your training. Now box breathing becomes a concentration practice. When you inhale, just visualize one side of the box being filled in. And then you, when you hold your breath, just visualize the top of the box being drawn in. And this is like drawing a box in your mind. When you exhale, draw the right side. And when you exhale, hold, draw the bottom. So that's one concentration tool that we use, which is very simple because imagery is a great way to you know, learn concentration or to develop concentration. Then we give them a second tool, which is a mantra. The mantra then, it has a impact also because we use English words that have positive meaning, which is very different than like transcendental meditation, which is a mantra practice, which is very powerful, but it's got some sort of esoteric meaning, which you know, really doesn't mean anything to you as an American or as a Westerner, you can pretend that it does. And you can pretend that the Sanskrit sound has some sort of esoteric. That's all bull. It's just, the, <laughs> it's just the practice of getting you to focus on that sound and nothing else. That's what concentrates your mind. So what we say is inhale, hold your breath, and then say your mantra. Mm-hmm. Now, I learned this in SEAL training. I had a mantra in SEAL training, and I did this practice. I inhaled, would hold my breath, and I'd say, I'm feeling good. I'm looking good. I ought to be in Hollywood. And then I would exhale, hold my breath. So I would do this all the time, like while I was listening to instructions, while I was in a class, and it would just run in my background. And it kept me very, very positive and very, very calm. And you can imagine, you know, everyone else is completely stressed out, stressed out, whether it's an academic test or physical test, but I'm feeling good, looking good, ought to be in Hollywood. And I was super positive, super happy. And I was calm because I was always triggering my parasympathetic nervous system. When you breathe through your nose with mouth closed and you get that deep diaphragmatic breath, inhale and exhale. You don't have to do the holds you know, all the time. That's just for when you're kind of sitting down or standing around. When you're moving or exercising, then you try to just take the, what I call the circular breath. In the seals, we call it the tactical breathing. It's the same thing where it's just five count in, five yeah. count out, five count in, five count out. Yeah. Six breaths per minute, which now research is showing to be the optimal breathing pattern. Right, for health and longevity. I'm a big proponent of breathing because as an executive communications coach, I'm always talking to my clients about breathing to help reduce the stress, to calm the nerves so that they have the energy using the mm-hmm. diaphragmatic breathing, belly breathing, in order to have strength right. in their voice when they speak. So I'm always talking about it, saying it's one of the most powerful and fundamental tools we have for public speaking, effective public speaking, but clearly in life. And you do this before Zoom meetings we with do. your teams, right? <laughs> I just love it. Breathing together as a team not only gives each individual that kind of calming uh, parasympathetic effect and concentrates their mind to prepare them for what's coming, which is an important meeting or else you wouldn't be having a meeting, but it also connects everybody. Right. So there's this, uh, this kind of morphogenic feeling, the field of connection, and it works whether you're on Zoom or in the room mm-hmm. together. Everyone is suddenly connected yeah. because they've been co-inspiring together. <laughs> it's such a powerful thing. I taught my boat crew these practices, but I didn't like box breathe my boat crew or do these practices during 
or before events. I just try to like encourage them to slow down and inhale through the nose. And, you know, and then I would verbalize my mantra with them. And so my team, I think is the only team in history of buds training or seal training that the whole team got through of the 19 graduates, seven of us were from my boat crew, which is pretty cool. Wow. It is cool. I mean, meditation, a lot of people call it a practice. And you talk about intuition and you say it's meant to be practiced. And when you first think about practicing intuition, that sort of is an oxymoron in some people's minds. What do you mean by that? And how do you practice intuition? Life is a practice. And if you're not practicing on becoming your best self every day, then, then the world is practicing for you and it's going to take you in the other direction. You're practicing every day, whether you know it or not. You know, one of the most powerful skills for leaders today is intuition. I define intuition in the several ways. One is kind of spontaneous, direct knowingness or perception of something that's true or a direction to go or some knowledge you didn't know before and you have no business knowing. That's one way of looking at intuition. And so you could say, well, that comes from maybe a subconscious pattern recognition from the right hemisphere of your brain. Suddenly, the final key gets put in place and it, and it becomes aware in your conscious mind. So that's one way of thinking about that. Another way of thinking about that is transrational knowledge. Like you are open enough because you've trained your brain that way to be open and receptive like a radio receiver that you're picking up information. And in, it's either from other people's minds a collective thought or an, an individual you're, you're thinking about or a thought you're, you're picking up information that's not mm-hmm. known to you. And so we have practices that we consider to be in the field of intuition that can help you open up and listen to this knowledge, this mm-hmm. wisdom. And so the heart's intuition is really about a, your self, your biggest self. And are you in alignment mm-hmm. with your calling or are you not? Are you heading toward the right things and serving the right way or are you heading away and you're going to get those signals from your heart and it'll come in in a feeling of like either i'm open and peaceful and content or i'm contracted and feeling agitated like i did in my 20s i'm closing down or i feel shut out you have such a positive energy about you mark and you've been hugely successful as an entrepreneur a coach motivational speaker podcast host And all of your books, you have five books, Unbeatable Mind, which is the one I've read and I love it, highly recommend. And your most recent one, Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. But I'm curious, with all that success, have you ever felt like you were a failure at something? And how did you rise above it if you did? You know, I have a little imposter syndrome like a lot of people do. You know, I grew up in a pretty rough family, but there was a lot of alcohol and a lot of anger from my father and codependence on my mom's side. And so like a lot of people, I didn't escape trauma. Very few people do, if anybody. And part of that trauma led me to have self-worth issues. So no matter how successful I have become, I can tell you, Liz, that I've I've probably held myself back from 90% of my potential as a result of that. Mm. And, and so I continue to work on that. I do EMDR every Thursday night with my therapist. Every morning I do spiritual practices with my wife, right, that are really bring us together, but also are leading us to openness and they're emotionally grounding, you know, practices. And, you know, of course, I've looked at the family of origin stuff and intended your terrific in-depth family of origin trauma training, such as the Hoffman therapy process, which is incredible, stuff like that. So the more and more work that I do peeling the onion of my own childhood trauma, which, A, by the way, made me a phenomenal Navy SEAL. There's a good side mm-hmm. to these things, right? And they all happen for a reason. So I'm not right. suggesting that, oh, woe is me. 
or that my parents did anything wrong. They didn't. You know, even though I forgave them, I recognized too that there's no reason to forgive them because they didn't do anything wrong. They just were who they were. And so I can take the good and the bad, magnify the good, and then transmute the bad into good. And we have that power. And so I, that's what I've been working on. This is such an important issue because everybody, no matter how successful you are, everybody I've met and dealt with and worked with has some limiting shadow that they're dealing with. And when they're willing to admit it and work with it, it unlocks vast new treasure troves of potential. And then we can perform and perform at our peak, but do so in a way that is much more fluid and spontaneous and from a whole, you know, what I call a whole person perspective. It's, it's not going to lead you down the road where you're so exhausted all the time or we have doubt, and especially in this, you know, this crazy world which we live in, which seems to be going faster and faster and getting crazier and crazier. When you release the childhood trauma, the shadow, and you can let go of trying to be perfect and let go of try- needing to be right all the time and deep underlying shame and trauma and grief and guilt, let go of all that crap. Wow, it just opens up. It's so it's liberating. liberating. And, and then you go forward with much more clarity and you find that peace of mind and then success becomes much more meaningful to you. I love the the theme and touching back on something you said just a moment ago that we are all more capable than we actually think we are. We can do so much more than we often give ourselves mm-hmm. credit for because of those limiting beliefs, because we have imposter syndrome. And to your point, we all have those kinds of challenges at some point in time. None of no. us is immune. <laughs> You've recreated your life. You've had so many wonderful chapters. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you would like to share with us today? I think it'd be fun to talk about the mission that's unfolded for what my work is. Because you didn't say that I'm a badass Navy SEAL, but I've got a heart. Yeah, that's all true. And I, I practice methods of integration, of wholeness, right, that are drawn from my martial arts and from yoga. And I've got about 800 hours of yoga teacher training. And I've been, I think that's a powerful tradition true yoga, meditative practices, and Zajin Buddhism, some really powerful things. None of these really matter. You don't have to put a label on anything. All we need to do is to take these gifts to humanity that have been around forever and just put them into our life, not resist them. And as soon as we do that, and, and again, my practice at Unbeatable Mind is starting with box breathing for, you know, for arousal control, dial in your physical health and your sleep and nutrition, and then learn how to concentrate and then turn that concentration light inward to look for spirit or witness, and then to develop mindful awareness of the trauma and the patterns that are holding you back, and then to begin to eradicate those through skillful means. And then to open yourself up to being whole again. Whole again, though, mm-hmm. from the perspective of an adult with a capable intellect who can, who can get important work done still. Right. So I'm not advocating that mm-hmm. anyone become a cave yogi or, or go to it, you know, the old idea of just disappearing to Zen mountain monastery, you know, and checking out from the world. I have this vision that we use these practices to check into the world and to live powerfully to and live. to heal the world, right? <laughs> so one of the natural outgrowths of these practices is that you move through the stages of ego, which most of humanity is still stuck in some sort of ego stage or ethnocentric stage, whether it's my, my way or the highway, my country, my tribe is better than your tribe. And, you know, we see that led to great conflict over the last thousands of years. And it's still going on today. But when you do these practices, you naturally evolve to world-centric orientation where you have 
compassion and concern for all of humanity, and which is inclusive of Mother Earth, because you recognize that we can't live separated from the environment and the Earth. So naturally, you know, within a short order, within a year or two of practice, you begin to really opening up and recognizing that some decisions that you've been making are really rooted in past beliefs that are egocentric or ethnocentric, and they're doing harm. And so you start making much better decisions. My goal is to bring 100 million people or more into this path of integrated practice toward wholeness, leading to world-centric perspectives and orientation and care and concern. And then together, as a tribe or as a movement, we take action, powerful action, to help you know others to pay it forward and to bring the humanity's consciousness up to levels where you know, we have more peace and less violence. And uh, Mother Earth just naturally heals. You know, there's no amount of carbon tax that's going to heal Mother Earth. It's going to be human consciousness that heals Mother Earth, in my opinion. Oh, there's so much we could talk about, Mark. We yeah. could go on forever, but I want to share with people how they can learn more about you your coaching programs, and your books. All they need to do is go to unbeatablemind.com. That's unbeatablemind.com. And we also have an easy link to all of Mark's books on our website and our podcast show notes. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and for sharing your story and inspiring us to wholeness. I don't know how else to say it, to inspiring us to wholeness. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. It's been an honor. Thank you for having me. And to all of you who've been listening in today, believe in yourselves. Believe that you are capable of so much more and stay in that positive mindset. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self check out fasttwitchmedia.space.